Out of respect for our audience, we would like to issue a trigger warning before this episode begins. We are going to be discussing sensitive topics in the following conversation, and we value the choices of all of our listeners, old and new, to avoid this conversation out of concerns for their comfort, safety, and emotional well-being. That said, we are recording this because the following content deserves some form of consideration and thought, and we encourage listeners to grapple with these ideas and challenge their preconceived notions. Welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 42. I'm Kip Clark, and today in the studio we have another guest, Joe Walsh. Hi, Kip. How's it going? Great, and yourself? I'm doing all right. It's good to have you here. So, as the audience might guess from the episode title, we are going to be discussing the riots in Baltimore, which of course is a sensitive issue. One of the first things I'd like to say, and I think you'd agree, we should acknowledge that we have tremendous bias. We are both white men, and therefore are in many ways separated or detached from a lot of the issues that are going on. But at the same time, I wanted to discuss it because I think conversation is important, even if we don't understand everything. And I would also like to say to the audience, this isn't going to be a prescription or a recipe for success or how to fix things. It's just our thoughts and opinions. We're obviously not experts, but we do have opinions and we've read a bit on the subject. And of course, I think both of us have been in touch with the media and watching what's going on and of course how that is portrayed because it's subjective in many ways. So one of my first questions to you is actually what your experience was like when you first heard about it. The audience might not know, but you are a resident of Baltimore and I'd be curious to hear sort of how it hit you when you first learned what was going on. Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, I think I'd just like to re-echo the disclaimer, you know, everything that you said at at the beginning of the podcast, because the fact that we are two white males um, discussing this topic, biases really do come into play. Uh, Privilege really comes into play, I think, in, in many ways. In addition, I think it's important for us, however, to start this discussion, continue this discussion. Obviously, people are talking about this a lot. I think every perspective is important and valid in its own way. And obviously, as you said, not everyone needs to agree on the solution or what events mean or, you know, to themselves or to other people. But I think being a part of that discussion is really, really crucial, just more generally. As you said, I am from Baltimore. I've lived there my entire life up until college, so 18 years, Um, and I, you know, go back you know, a number of times per year. Uh, And I think my first reaction was uh, really a little bit of of shock. This was, you know, obviously there have been a number of incidents like the one in Baltimore across the country in recent years um, and really throughout history. I think you could broaden that further. But I think the idea that it was happening so close to home really sort of changed my perspective in a way because Obviously, you know, you, you hear about these, these things going on, these riots, these deaths, these events that, you know, you sort of think of going into the next set of history books, but they're so far removed if you're not actually there and you're not present. And, you know, in a sense, I'm from Baltimore, but I'm still not present. You know, I'm, I haven't been there since uh, any of this has happened. So in some ways, I think it is still removed from my own life experience, uh, obviously. However, it, it really made things, I think, a little bit more real for me. You know, this is not just happening 
three states over or four states over. It's happening in my backyard, uh, essentially. And I think it's really made me start to question exactly what the importance of these events overall is and the possibility of, of change that could come from them. I mean, there are also so many different things that we could talk about, you know, the, the way the media has portrayed these things, the, you know, violence versus peaceful protest, the, just to mention a couple, but these things are so complicated. But for me, the big thing was it really became more of a personal thing, knowing that my parents are there, seeing it sort of firsthand. So may I ask, have they had any particular reactions to it or thoughts that you're willing to share? Yeah, so I actually ended up Skyping them uh, only a few days after the funeral service when a lot of the riots really started. And I was actually very surprised. They were very, very unconcerned. Uh, I think I was a lot more concerned, maybe potentially because from, you know, eight hours away in in Ohio, mystery is almost half of the fear. Uh, Not really knowing or understanding what's going on there is really half the battle of, of understanding you know, why am I so afraid of the situation, even though I'm not there? So as I said, they were much calmer than I expected them to be. Both my parents are college professors, so they were very concerned about the light that this is putting Baltimore in as a city, um, especially because the funeral and the riots happened right before the last week of college decisions. So they thought this would have an impact on their class uh, in the coming year, which definitely could be the case. Um, I guess only only time will tell, or they probably would know by now. But it was a lot less concern of you know safety or anything like that. For example, the CVS that was sort of famously in the last few weeks looted and set on fire and all of that, that's sort of been the image of these Baltimore riots, you know, a burning building, burning vehicles, that kind of thing. But they've really said that although that's been the media's response to the situation in Baltimore, most of the protests have been very, very peaceful. Freddie Gray's family has called for peace and peaceful support in their time of need and struggle. So. You know, it's it's really interesting because you read all of these different things, or at least I read all these different things, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is a place that is falling apart, where in reality that doesn't really seem to be the case. However, again, this is coming from someone who is getting secondhand knowledge from both my parents who are physically there, but also the media, and that's a, a whole other discussion of how the media portrays these different kinds of things. So then I guess sort of following what I said about the media, Kip, as someone who is not a resident of Baltimore, I don't know, have you been to Maryland or Baltimore before? I've been to Maryland. I don't think I've ever been to Baltimore. Okay. What is your perspective on on the situation, mostly coming from the media side, not having as much personal connection to the city, still, I guess, being a little more removed, potentially? I mean, that's also up for debate as well from the situations in Baltimore and elsewhere. Well, I think I definitely am removed. But I also try and keep in mind with any media, really, and I know this is very hard and I don't do an amazing job of the following, but that media cannot accurately represent everything that's going on, especially in a city where there are often millions of people in a small space, all with different opinions, all with different, often varying experiences. And I think the media often fixates on the most vibrant or eye-catching examples of anything, things that are really dramatic and stand out. We don't photograph or film people that are peacefully watching Jeopardy at night because that's boring and mundane. We do film people that are rioting or looting, and I think it's important to keep in mind that the media is representing a fraction and claiming in many ways, even if it doesn't directly do so or vocally do so, that that minority is representative of the whole. And when I say minority, I don't necessarily mean racial or ethnic minority. I mean minority as a smaller group of people that is a part of a larger whole. And I think we often forget that and think if we see a riot or a car set on fire, other conditions in the area are operating similarly. 
So I've tried to remember that, and that as I've read, there were, according to some articles, around 10,000 protesters, 100 of whom were violent. And it's important to remember that there were 9,900 who were not, and were trying very, very ardently to peacefully make their points. And so I think the media has done a poor job of reflecting that, because those people do have a story, and frankly are trying very respectfully, and I would argue with a lot of restraint, to tell that story. And I think it's a lot of restraint because of the racial history of America, which frankly we don't discuss a lot. And one thing that occurs to me that I'd be curious to hear your input on, I've had a lot of discussions with people, frankly, white people because of the crowd that I tend to be associated with and types of people in my life and surrounding areas, which are not as diverse as they should be and as I would like them to be in the future, that condemn a lot of this violence and say, especially if black people are rioting, they're really upset by that and think that it's savage or problematic or barbaric in some way, to which I respond by saying, you need to look at our history and ask yourself if it really seems fair to essentially imprison, oppress, and dehumanize an entire group of people for hundreds of years, and then when that slowly changes to a slightly more positive way of life for that group of people, to criticize them when they still have anger, which frankly is an understatement. I think the word anger does not capture how enraged the black community should be. And while I don't promote violence, I do try to be understanding of the various responses that people have to various situations in life, but particularly to these deaths, which I do think are symptomatic of something else, it almost seems ignorant to me to ask them to quote, calm down or say anything along those lines, when frankly the atrocities that white people, even if more so in the past, have committed can't be forgotten. And I say more more so in the past because things are still going on and there are things that although not directly aggressive are still oppressive and I don't think we often acknowledge that maybe it's impossible to get outside of one's biases and ingrained systematic racism but I do think it's important to acknowledge it and to try and get outside of it as best you can even if it isn't possible or easy and I don't have all the answers and obviously as a white male I exist in a system that has benefited me but I'm not happy about that, and I'm also not unaware of the fact that it has, but I think there are people listening who would say, that's not enough. And I guess that's the discussion I really wish the country had, to legitimately accuse people of enjoying privilege ignorantly and proposing solutions. What do you think about the idea that I'm not necessarily upset by the violence because I think it's a rational response? As you were saying, we live in a world where, at least in the U.S., and really through large parts of the world, at least the Western world, you know, being white, being male especially, that combination gets you a lot in life that people just do not take into consideration because it doesn't seem like you're getting anything out of it. But in reality, you are, as, as you were saying, with, with sort of white, especially white male privilege, but white privilege in general. And, you know, I, I recently read a news article that was discussing, as you were saying, the different ways that people respond, you know, peaceful protest, violent protests, and, and everything in between. I am not someone who naturally is inclined towards violence. I think that if there are other solutions, that those are the ones that should be first in order to make progress. However, the struggle of African Americans in, in the U.S., has gone on for centuries and centuries and centuries. And at a certain point, I think that if there is not change being implemented into the system that you were discussing that really privileges one group over another, I think at that point, the biggest thing is whatever way change is possible, I think that's the sort of the most important thing. As I said, I don't usually condone violence. I think it's I don't want to go so far as to say it's wrong, because I think in some situations, including this situation, I think it may be the action that needs to be taken. 
I think that if violence is the only way to really show that the system is not working, that the system is privileging this one group over another group, I think that at that point it is time that whatever action necessary to bring that system to the front and, and look at it and say, hey, this needs to change, at that point I think that if violence is the way to get people to notice that and, and make a change, then I think violence is potentially the correct course of action. Right. And to those people who are criticizing violence or saying, well, no, it's barbaric and it's just destructive, I challenge you to refuse to read those news articles or watch those news stories. Prove to the media that the violence is not effective and that it's not reaching out to people. But inherently, I believe psychologically, human beings pay attention to violence. I'm sure there's some evolutionary standard there, but we notice it. If there's a loud noise, we react because we are ingrained with this instinct to detect danger. And I think that's why we often look to violence and to anyone who's saying it's not the right way to get attention. Have you read those news stories? And if you have, they got your attention and you're proving that point incorrect. And I think that if we really didn't want violent protests to happen, the consumers of media need to indicate in some way that they're not reading those stories about burning cars and looters and broken stores. Because frankly, there is a subtle encouragement of that behavior. It's like when you laugh at someone but tell them that was a mean joke, you're still laughing, and on some level you are encouraging that, and I think people need to separate their words from their message and ideally make them into one. Absolutely, and I, I think one of the things you were mentioning a second ago, almost sort of these two different worlds, if you will, I think that you have the lives that people, especially white Americans, live, you know, this peaceful white picket fence kind of thing, and then you contrast that with the kind of TV we watch, or the kind of news we watch. We enjoy watching crime shows because it's an exciting, dangerous kind of thing that we're not used to experiencing in our everyday lives. We like seeing these dramatic events unfolding throughout the world because we are not experiencing them, but we want to be a part of that world in some small way. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing, but I think you need to acknowledge that if you are going to make that crossover and say that this is also part of my world, you have to take that into sort of your everyday life and say, okay, this is a part of my world. How am I reacting and how should I be reacting more comprehensively and appropriately to these situations when I'm not actually a part of them specifically? To me, it's really important that you bring up the idea of parts and whole and how we interact with the larger whole and what that relationship is meant to be because I think the issue with violence becomes innocent lives police officers who are simply doing their job, who are paid to come to these riots and try and keep things safe. And I would say in defense of many police officers, I believe that many, if not most of them, are doing dangerous work that is very difficult, taxing, stressful, potentially fatal in some situations. And although there are certainly issues of racism, I think there are many police officers who stand for justice and who do uphold the law in positive ways. At the same time, on the other side, there are innocent protesters who are hurt, or children maybe who are brought to riots who are hurt, those that I don't think deserve the casualties of violence. At the same time, if someone is of voting age or even of a mental capacity to think like an adult and behave in an adult fashion, I wonder to what extent they are innocent or complicit and denying their role in the system that frankly you can say, I've never said a racist slur or I've never thought racist things. But if you aren't fixing systemic racism in a country that you do purport to be a citizen of, aren't you in some way part of the problem? Are you a bystander? And I think that's true of me and many people. Frankly, a lot of the people I call friends are probably in that category. And I don't know how I feel about that. But I don't know that there are as many people that are simply innocent as we'd like to say. 
and I think we love the word innocence as a blanket, and frankly, it's so easy to throw guilt around, but I think we're way too comfortable labeling people as innocent when we aren't all innocent. I will say, however, one story that really bothered me, told by NBC News, there was a woman whose sports store was looted and absolutely destroyed by rioters, and she is an African-American woman who is now out of a job. And I think, okay, she's a victim of one system and then a victim of the riots against that system as well, and nothing about that seems fair, and I don't think she deserves that. She appeared to be very hardworking. I believe she was a mother, and she's in middle age, so I think there's a lot of difficulties that she's facing that she doesn't deserve. And the idea of innocence is really tricky, but I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are on innocence and guilt and how that plays into violent protests. Absolutely. And in our legal system, generally, I think there's a very clear-cut line as to what guilt and innocence are. However, in the broader scheme of law, the world, I don't think it's quite that clear-cut. I think that, you know, we have in place a system that if you do this, you've crossed the line, you've broken the law, you deserve punishment of some kind or another. However, to say that going out on the streets and getting the anger out that you feel because of a systematic problem that's lasted for at least 400 years in the U.S., longer than that in the world, I think that is incredibly problematic. As you said at the beginning of the podcast, we're not necessarily here to offer solutions to these problems. I don't know personally what solution there is. I think it really comes down to a lot of better consensus between different people and different groups of different ideologies, from different backgrounds, from different socioeconomic classes, races, genders, sort of everyone coming together and having some sort of a unifying ideology is sort of the best word I can come up with. But even less than ideology, I think, just some common ground that everyone can sort of come to and say, hey, you know, we're all human beings. And it's a really unfortunate thing that for much of our history, especially Western Europe and the Americas, not all humans were considered humans. And that's just sort of the way historically it's been. And I think a lot of people look at the world today and sort of look at those past ideas and think those have been thrown away. They don't exist anymore. We've moved on. We're so progressive. This is great. Where in reality, I think a lot of this group is the white upper class. They're the best. They're the most evolved, the greatest. To some extent, that ideology still exists which is incredibly problematic, obviously, when, you know, you have nations like the U.S. of multiple races, multiple religions, multiple groups, really just trying to live their lives. And it's very hard to simply live your life when in some aspect of the word, not all of those people are considered equal and on a level playing field. I'm glad that you referenced common ground because there are two things that I want to say. First of all, at the time of this recording, which is May 5th, 2015, The six officers charged in the death of Freddie Gray have been released on bond, but they have been charged. And while charges vary, one officer faces a second-degree murder charge. Also, three of the six officers are African-American, which I think is important because I suspect that many people imagine all six as being white individuals, which is not true. In the Huffington Post article that Joe and I read, the author references a Kendrick Lamar track, which I believe is called Mortal Man, in which he uses a recording of Tupac Shakur saying, I think that N-words is tired of grabbing expletive out the stores, and next time it's a riot, there's going to be bloodshed for real. I don't think America know that. It's going to be like Nat Turner, 1831. And when I read that, it's troubling to me to note that black members of society remember who fought for them, who their martyrs and saviors were, those who were on their side in the fight against slavery, which was a righteous one and one that needed to happen. 
but white aggressors don't have a shameful memory of their ancestors who committed these crimes and who committed these atrocities. And I think it's very difficult to have that discussion when one side remembers who represented it and the other side doesn't have the same representation. I think that's problematic because we need to come to the discussion and admit where we were wrong deeply, deeply wrong. And by we, I mean both America, but also white individuals. And I think that white guilt is a very problematic idea and not necessarily one that I believe in. But at the same time, we are products of the past. And I think we have to acknowledge that. And I also think as Americans, we often say things like, oh, Hitler in Germany, way in the past, in this foreign country, was evil and he's a horrible man. But that we don't look at our own country and say, what evil things were committed here? Because America is not pure we have a lot of work to do, and I think a lot of our ideals might be pure, but ideals on paper and reality in modern America are not the same thing, and I think that a lot of work has to be done. So what do you think about that comparison of remembering one side of history but not the other and almost denying the guilt that exists? Absolutely. It's, I think, one of the big questions in the common day. What narrative are we trying to construct of our past? You know, obviously there are tons and tons of historical events that have happened, but if you look, for example, in an American history textbook, there are going to be the best 80, essentially, or the most influential 80 might be the better way of putting that. And, you know, you have all these historical figures, one that just pops into my mind, Andrew Jackson, you know, one of our former U.S. presidents, and I believe it was him that sort of the Trail of Tears came from his policymaking, if you will. We a lot of the time think of Trail of Tears as horrible, horrible things that happened to the Native Americans. But I think a lot of people forget that white America did that to the Native Americans. As you said, it's very, very easy, I think, for any group to latch onto those historical figures that were really important and influential for their growth. And I think that's great. However, I think it's really important to see both sides of the story. Those early Americans who were really for the end of slavery, but owned slaves. We don't necessarily look at that dichotomy. Especially, I think, white America and Western Europe as well. We try to create these narratives out of history that do give an accurate, quote unquote, accurate sense of history. However, we want to give the best, most accurate sense of history as it brings us to where we are in the best possible light okay, let's link ourselves back to the Greeks and Romans because that was a time of great prosperity and, and you know, richness of, of cultural development and, and all of that. And, you know, let's remember Abraham Lincoln because he did wonderful things during his presidency and George Washington because he started our great country. You don't really remember the figures who really did horrible things or if you do, you remember the more positive sides of their lives. Absolutely. And it's also complicated to look back to the slavery period of our American history because I think we often forget how deeply entrenched it was in our capitalistic system, which isn't a positive thing, but keep in mind that we still operate on a capitalist system, and there are many people overseas who are making clothes, for example, at very cheap prices because of how capitalism operates. And so we have to remember that there are casualties in things other than war and riots that I don't think we often consider. And although there were forefathers regarding slavery who protested it. They couldn't deny that it was lucrative, and frankly, the young nation needed money. And that's not me justifying slavery, but I do think it's a lot harder to separate the moral good from the financially beneficial. And I know that we're still feeling the effects of that today, and perhaps I'm wrong again in saying we, because I have largely benefited from that. And that's also really troubling to think that 
There's just something I can't remove from myself that is, in many ways, tied to evil acts, and that upsets me. I would like to cite the Atlantic article that we also read, and a quote from it which says, When nonviolence is preached as an attempt to evade the repercussions of political brutality, it betrays itself. When nonviolence begins halfway through the war with the aggressor calling time out, it exposes itself as a ruse. When nonviolence is preached by the representatives of the state, while the state doles out heaps of violence to its citizens, it reveals itself to be a con. And none of this can mean that rioting or violence is correct or wise any more than a forest fire can be correct or wise. Wisdom isn't the point tonight. Disrespect is. In this case, disrespect for the hollow law and failed order that so regularly disrespects the community. And to me, that's one of the worst parts about all of this, that I think there are politicians and leaders who are asking for something that they don't fully understand. And I know that I'm one of those individuals that I don't fully understand and arguably may never, which is very sad to me to think that I can't because I would like to. And the fact that we're having this conversation, I think, indicates that however ignorant you and I may be, we would like to talk about it and would like to understand because dialogue is important, even if it isn't always easy or comfortable. And I acknowledge that. And if there have been any comments that I have made or that Joe has made, please reach out to us and let us know because we recognize that this is very difficult. What do you think about that quotation that I read? I think one part of this quote is incredibly interesting. I mean, obviously, I think the entire quote is very pertinent, obviously, to the situation that we're discussing. And I think it says a lot of really great things. But one point really hits the nail on the head where it says wisdom isn't the point. Disrespect is. Getting back to what we were talking about earlier a little with what we were saying about throughout different parts of history, different people not being considered human or not being considered people under certain circumstances. Disrespect is the point here. It's not wisdom. It's the fact that you and I can look at each other in this podcast and and say, you know, oh, we have some kind of mutual respect for each other. We're on some kind of level playing field, if you will. But I don't think that that's something that everyone can say for people who are similar to them let alone people who have major differences from them. I think a lot of this comes down to simply the word difference. You know, we look at someone else or we see them doing something or we hear them speak or we hear some idea come out of their mouth and all we label that is how different are you from me or how similar are you from me? And as the quote was saying, you know, politicians, the way they live their lives, those circumstances are different from 99.99999% of people around the world. They're different from you and me. They're different from people in Baltimore who are rioting, the people who are not rioting. They're different from pretty much everyone. But then again, the way that you and I sort of consider our own lives, they're going to be incredibly different from every other person that we interact with. But especially, I think, when you get to a point when difference is looked on so easily as something that should be taken advantage of and not something that is just accepted, that's when you get into a danger zone. And unfortunately, we've been in that danger zone since the formation of our nation. And I think it's a lot harder to go from having that problem to correcting it than it is the other way around. Unfortunately, you know, 300 years ago, 500 years ago, when a lot of European countries were colonizing other areas, this was sort of the attitude generally. But I think what the author says about disrespect is the issue. We need to have respect for one another. I think that 
having respect for the person who lives next door to you, you know, on your street, that comes easy because you're next to each other. You have some similarity and commonality in, in the way you probably live your life. But having respect for the little kid who lives five blocks over in a much poorer neighborhood or having respect for the person who lives halfway across the world and doesn't speak the same language, that's, I think, really where the challenge comes in. And I think that's partially where the challenge comes in into the Baltimore situation as well. I think that there have been a lot of injustices done to a lot of people in Baltimore, elsewhere across the country in the last 500 years in history and and past that as we've already discussed. But finding some kind of way to respect one another, for rioters to respect the police, police to respect the rioters, for everyone to sort of find some kind of general respect in humanity, that's not a solution in any way, but I think it's a start. For politicians to actually respect the people they are representing, for the people who are being represented to respect politicians, because I think that goes both ways a lot of the time. So I think the point that he brings up with disrespect being the main issue is completely on point. Once we learn to respect each other as human beings and not as upper, middle, or lower class, poverty-stricken or wealthy, black, white, any race, any religious background, uh, any sexual orientation, respect in some ways is a huge component just to solving a lot of the different social issues we find in our world today generally. I'm on the same page. I think similarity and difference are important. I think how we treat others is, of course, an obvious concern. And I'd like to ask you before we close the episode, not necessarily solutions you would promote, but things you would like our listeners to think about. And of course, this episode will probably go up sometime this summer after we've recorded it. We don't know what will happen in the future in Baltimore. We don't know if these riots are still going on or if other tragic events have unfolded since this recording. What would you ask people to consider? Well, I think the main thing is what you mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast. This is an opportunity as these events and these riots more generally have been an opportunity for people to start a discourse, to start a discussion, to learn more about each other, to learn more about the situations that each person and different people and different groups find themselves in. As you said, coming up with a solution is incredibly challenging for any one person. But once you start to have some sort of understanding as to where is this person coming from because of their social background or their economic background or just their background generally as a person from all aspects of their life, I think that's the most important thing. And I think it's also incredibly important that, as we discussed with the media earlier, that people who are watching these feeds of the riots or reading articles about the riots, I mean, obviously that's how you and I are getting a lot of our information for this podcast as well that they're not just reading these with a blind eye and taking them to be fact without any questioning. I think there are a lot of media outlets that do a really great job of telling the facts and and all of that. But as we have discussed, there's a certain kind of media that the media knows people like to see and like to read and like to watch. So I think always just sort of questioning your own held beliefs, whether those are known beliefs that you have actively taken a hold on, or if there are others that have just sort of popped into your head through society, or if it's through the media. I think just constant questioning, you know, what does this really mean? What are the conditions for these events is crucial. I agree with you. 
I would also urge people to consider the difference between feeling uncomfortable and feeling unsafe. I personally believe it's very important to feel uncomfortable sometimes, if not frequently. It causes us to question our surroundings, to question the people around us, and hopefully to question ourselves why we feel uncomfortable. Often I think it's because of social stimuli, and I think that those are very important to challenge because they are often wrong. And I don't think that the group and the majority are always right, and I believe it's a bit archaic to believe that that's the case. Clearly, in our society, the majority has not been right, given what's currently, at least at the time of this recording, going on in Baltimore and various areas around the country. And so I think people should pursue feeling uncomfortable from time to time. You should never feel unsafe, and that's important, and that leads me to say that if this episode has in any way made listeners feel unsafe, please contact us. We need to know that that's vital. This conversation was never meant to cause that, and that is something that we take deeply seriously and would, of course, address in turn. So please let us know. If you would like to contact us, we want you to be a part of this conversation like any other episode. And, of course, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. You can reach us on Twitter, at Stride N Saunter. Our Facebook account is Stride and Saunter. We encourage you to email us, strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And our website is strideandsaunter.com. And Joe, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. And as always, we thank all of you for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.